0: that Deputy Healy Ray approached people outside the Mass to say, I can get you on the bus if you want the cataract. The, 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 the woman concerned. Said,
1: you should take that back. You want a disgrace?
0: From this day forward, it's going to be only
1: America first. America first. That Mr. Marriott was not suspended. Did I did not overrule him. I did not overrule Derek. Did you expression to overrule I took advice. Oh,
2: Derek! Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Hello and welcome to the State of Affairs with me Karen Dedean, I am your host today. And today actually marks our fifth episode, which is pretty hard to imagine already. And at the start of us uh, commencing this show, you may remember that I said during my opening monologue that day that we might have a little bit of uh, provoking and a wee bit of controversy and maybe that's what we're going to get today in this show coming up. Uh, Later on between, well between now and four really, uh, or five p.m. we're going to play a conversation I had with uh, former RT presenter Eddie Hobbs on a Friday evening relating to global economics in this COVID world. We're going to talk opinion polls following the latest release for political party support and subsequently we might even segue into a discussion on party leadership uh, looking at Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and perhaps who might replace Micheál Martin and Leo Faradkar. To discuss all that in more I am joined by Anya O'Neill. Anya how are you? Very good how are you? Not too bad now. I believe that you're interviewing um, Michael McGrath this evening, are you?
2: I am, yeah. Lovely. So looking forward to that one.
0: Where can people see that?
2: So that'll be on the UCC Fianna Fáil uh, Facebook page as a video and it'll be linked on all our social media and mine as well.
0: Wonderful! Looking forward to that because, as a cargoline man myself, I have a vested interest, I suppose, with Michael being our local base TD. And Adam, you spent uh, the weekend getting blocked by more Irish journalists on Twitter, I believe. So, is that what you were up to this weekend?
3: Yeah, I'd like to think for righteous reasons, but um, others might debate that.
0: Well, we might, we might, we might come to that later. We'll see. Um, so, the first thing I want to say is, did you watch the Toy Show? Lads? It was fantastic, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I have um, three younger sil- siblings, so every year we watch it I don't normally like it I liked it this year um, obviously it was a breath of fresh air and also I thought that there was less emphasis on the like the gadgets the new toys whatever it can become a bit of a a hallmark type advertising a couple hours but I um, no I enjoyed it this year alright
0: Yeah it's interesting because there was a little bit of a backlash on Twitter about the, the the small scale of toys that were actually on show but it's been a very difficult year for people you know so Santa might not be might not be going to every household in the country and people should recognise that um, Anya did you watch
2: it? I did I didn't expect to but Twitter dragged me in in the end and I'm really glad I did I think again it's been a very tough year for people I think it was great that there wasn't as much of an emphasis on the very expensive toys there was a lot more let's say even there was a child with his trains his wooden trains that kind of thing you know it was really heartwarming just seeing such diversity in the children and seeing such uh, I suppose um, a move away from a lot of the very expensive toys you'd usually be seeing so I thought it was great yeah
0: and I haven't actually watched it for a couple of years um, showing my age but I was more of a Pat Kenny man myself and I was disgusted when, when he left, and I didn't particularly enjoy Ryan's first couple, but uh, no, it was it was absolutely superb on Friday night. Adam Adam from uh, from Cork actually stole the show, not this Adam, but uh, NASA have actually reached out to him, and um, I think they've invited him over or something like that, which is pretty uh, incredible. And I think it showed again in, in, in the tough times. Uh, You know, it's just small things like that that can can brighten our days. But I I did feel kind of lousy when the the person who was looking after him in in hospital came onto the show and he had to, like, stand four or five metres away from him and couldn't hug him and any of this stuff. And I can understand that RT don't want to be setting that kind of uh, example, but I just thought, like, would you ever go off and hug the kid, like, you know? Oh what what did you think did that come into your minds at all
3: oh, 100% i was thinking that like i was just envisaging the the lockdown hawks at home ready with the the, fig, the finger on the the trigger um on ready to tweet, tweet. yeah on oh. the tweet button but um come here I I always find it so funny trying to explain to international friends that once a year around Christmas time a majority of the country sits down to watch children review toys but I suppose there is a broader point at play which is that Ireland places a big emphasis on its younger generations they're kind of I don't know, they 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 show a kindness in times of difficulty and this type of stuff. So, of course, it was heartwarming to see. Um, and I did think he stole the show as well.
0: Mm, and hopefully he'll be able to f- hug his relatives over, over Christmas time, which I suppose brings us into the fact that we're going back to level three tomorrow. Absolutely exciting. I'm ecstatic, I can't wait. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a, a move away from from Enfit, which is um an interesting strategy. We'll see if they stick with it in January uh, but back again um, to level three what what are you looking forward to tomorrow on yeah, are you doing anything
2: I think I'm going to see how things uh, go for a while and I might let things settle down and let the rush settle down a bit before i go out shopping or anything like that i think look just because we can do things that doesn't mean we necessarily should i'm really looking forward to visiting a lot of restaurants and cafes and things like that that i haven't been able to for a while but at the same time i think we have to be sensible and maybe just cool off for a while until we see how things go
0: well, you were getting me fierce to press there, but then you kind of saved it towards the end. And Charlie was in that seat last week giving me an awful downer, as I, uh, as I refer to. Uh, uh, Adam, are you looking forward to doing anything in particular?
3: Yeah, well, I said last week that um, I'd be the first in the queue for a vaccine. I probably would imagine I'd be the first in the queue for a haircut to whatever sort of pub opens up. Um, whatever I managed to get my hands on we've we've lost time to make up for so maybe not as sensible as Onya.
0: I, I thought you were saying there that you were getting your hair cut in the pub or something like that <laughs> I was like, he's, he's going to multitask there with a, with, a, with a pintist out in one hand and uh, the scissors in the other um, uh, it is kind of an interesting deviation though from Enfit because they've obviously come out and said that they weren't for all of this loosening of the restrictions and I know we've been talking about it a lot lately but I think from, from what our discussions were was that if they don't deviate from the strategy or th- if they do, there's going to have to be another decision made in January as to whether we get up to 900 to 1000 cases and we go back into a third lockdown. So at the moment, the strategy that they're taking is, is that we would go into that lockdown, but maybe there is a move away from, from NFIT advice. What do you think, Anya?
2: Maybe a bit. Uh, I suppose, as we've said, I think NFIT are absolutely doing their best, but ultimately their job is to look at public health and nothing else and you can't blame them for that that is their job so the government does have to balance a lot more but i think you're right uh in terms of a third lockdown i really hope it doesn't come to that i really think this is up to the public now to be sensible not necessarily take advantage of every last loosening of restrictions there is and just if you be sensible over christmas then we won't have to go back into a third lockdown and obviously it's very difficult to get that message out to everyone it's been a very hard year people are really looking forward to christmas but ultimately i think there can only be so much done by the government it's really up to personal responsibility now
0: And we're talking about the polls a little later on and uh, I I saw a couple of tweets on it again today and there were actually questions about whether people thought it was worth opening up for Christmas if we're going to be back down in the lockdown again in January and it was very, very split. I think it was about 55, 45 um, against the idea. So uh, we we might have a little chat about that later. but And and I brought it up with, with Eddie for our conversation which I'm going to play in a while but adam you know it, it does seem that and i was listening to um tomás ryan the associate professor up in up in dublin who was advocating for zero covid mm. and he's very much against the idea of going into a third lockdown but he'd rather us locked down for kind of 12 weeks so if we all see our family over the next three or four weeks have a great christmas and then come back, and we're into nine hundred, a thousand cases again. Do you think people are actually going to accept going into another lockdown?
3: Um, I, jeez, I, I. <laughs> I hope it doesn't end up like that. in the course, um, as Anya says, it comes down to personal responsibility to a large um, degree. Yes, especially over the Christmas time when household visits will be allowed uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But uh, as regards the Nefed advice, like I think when you when you when you listen to the zero COVID advocates or the the people who place their emphasis on public health, a lot of people are just growing sick of it, like because. First off, we know that it's not attainable to achieve zero COVID in a nation like Ireland, a member of the European Union connected to another country on this island. Um, we're not Australia, we're not New Zealand, but also, like, I think that people don't even see it as um, desirable to shut down for such a long period. And so, we've already shut down for six weeks. We were promised a good Christmas on that basis, and so we're kind of getting what, what we've earned.
0: Mm, and I, I was listening to uh, News Talk this morning, and we mentioned on on last week's show. About how the government and the health officials were going to have to be really careful in terms of their messaging around uh, the the vaccine and whether they were going to try and push it to be mandatory or not. And this morning on News Talk, the question that we brought up last week, about making it mandatory and how that was going to turn a lot of people against it because there there will be people who are anxious I mean this is the fastest vaccine that seems to be have ever been made we don't know exactly how effective it will be at the end of the day and uh, you know we we're gonna have to have that question uh, in in terms of whether we make it mandatory or not because we're gonna we're gonna face a, a massive backlash in my opinion and you weren't here last week on you for that discussion but what what do you think about that
2: Uh, Well, I don't know ethically if you can force people to have a vaccine. I really hope there's a very high uptake, but I think there might be a lot of legal questions about actually forcing people to do it. I think the idea of the kind of vaccine passport for uh, travel and that kind of thing could be very useful in that, I suppose, incentivizing people to take the vaccine, showing them that they will only have those kind of freedoms in terms of travel if they have the vaccine, but at the same time not physically forcing them to do it either. Uh, Yeah, I think with the vaccine, hopefully, like in terms of, I suppose one thing you mentioned there is how quickly it was produced. And I think that's one thing that worries people. But we do have to remember this wasn't rushed. It still went through the largest human trial in history. The only reason it's been done so quickly is because of the pooling of resources towards it. I suppose, relaxing all the red tape, getting rid of all of that. So I don't see it as any less safe than a vaccine that took years to produce.
0: Well, I hope you're right. And I know in Australia, they actually do have um, mandatory vaccines. I think it's for children. And if the parents don't get their children vaccinated, they actually don't get uh, social welfare or something like that or they don't get a couple of a couple of payments of, of social welfare which I mean if you brought that in here I mean that's a really interesting discussion isn't it because you'd imagine that Sinn Féin and you know the left political left-leaning political parties would go absolutely berserk over that and yet you would have thought that they would have been uh, the highest advocators for, for taking vaccines at the same time, wouldn't you, Adam?
3: Well, they're going to need to work on it because the polling says that their supporters are the least likely to um, take a vaccine. I think the growing consensus seems to be that you try to make it uh, effectively mandatory, as Anya mentions, um, by private businesses uh, saying that a vaccine needs to have been taken to go on their airplane or go in their shop. Um, by saying that unless the vaccine is taken, you, you will have to homeschool your, uh, homeschool your children. Um, just true ways like that. you're not um, f- you're 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 not forcing people to do it, but you're giving them little little other option.
0: Mm-hmm. and I think uh, Qantas got as we mentioned last week they got a big uh, a big backlash against their statement and I wouldn't be surprised if they, uh, if they were reversing and make a bit of a U-turn but look we're going to take uh, a quick break here live in studio and we're going to turn to an exclusive interview that I had with Eddie Hobbs the other day uh, the full length version is now available on Spotify but we're just going to play you a clipped version of what he had to say I hope you enjoy it thrilled to now be joined by Eddie Hobbs. Eddie is a regular contributor and commentator on matters of economic management and and personal finance, having previously presented RT's very successful finance series, Show Me the Money. In recent months, he's uh, been a critical voice in analysing Ireland's fiscal response to COVID-19, and his most recent observations uh, on the current climate are available to view on eddiehobbs.com. Eddie, thanks a million for joining me today. You're very welcome. Um, Eddie, there's so many places where we could start this conversation and it would be very easy to kind of get bogged down in what's happened over the last seven or eight months. But I'd like to ask you this. So the ECB going back seven or eight months ago, realized that the proverbial was going to hit the fan and they saw that coming eventually uh you know and they realized that they needed to provide adequate support to european nation states and there was this sort of mario draggy moment of mm-hmm. we'll do whatever it takes to save the currency and the euro so c- could you just briefly explain to me and to the listeners what have they actually done to ensure this
1: well i think the best way of, of coming at that Kieran, if i may is to it's just to go back a little bit further and go broader go global because the ECB is is operating in concert with the other global central banks. That's quite clear. The, the lead central bank, really, I mean, the global central bank is the Fed. The next most important one is the ECB, you know, Bank of Japan, Bank of England, etc. And uh, when the global financial crisis hit, uh, uh, which seems like a long time ago for people, you know, who are students in college at the moment, but actually was really only a very short time ago. The response at the time was to interfere Basically, blow a whistle and and stop the free forces of capitalism, and 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 where you had massive central bank intervention through money printing, uh, also known as quantitative easing, uh, which is really just bailing out uh, countries like Greece and Italy, uh, and and buying securities, their bonds at prices nobody else would pay in the market, uh, and so you had the first basically uh, dole for um, for countries. Um, to, to stop, uh, basically, a collapse of the global financial system at the time, and Europe had to reinvent itself. Uh, it was a real existential moment and it did it through that crisis period. But it was also happening elsewhere throughout the world, including in the United States. Uh, banks then were, you know, recapitalized there more strongly than they were in Europe, etc. And off we went. And every time the, uh, the the um, the artificial blow up that that then created in, in asset prices and property and stocks and bonds and all the rest of it. Anytime it was threatened, they just opened up the spigots again. So the next real threat really was towards the back end of 2018 when when it looked as if stock markets were going to just collapse, uh, you know, they were falling 20% very quickly. And the, the People's Bank of China and the uh, Fed simply opened up the spigots and there was more money printing and away we went again. And along comes COVID-19 then at the start of this year. And that the actual fall in market like markets are important because they're a, they're, they're, they're a, they're a measure of what's happen, what's going to come down long, what's coming down the pipe from an economic perspective. So stock markets fell um, from peak to trough by about 50% between February and the worst part of March, which was nose bleeding. But we were so engrossed with the, with the pandemic numbers, the health numbers, Uh, there was very little journalism or attention going on the economic impacts at all so it kind of went over our heads here but that was the scale of the collapse and globally then the central banks did what they've done before except this time it was absolutely jaw-dropping the level of money printing was we think around 20 trillion when you add it all together globally dollars but uh, uh, so what, what what that's done now is that it's pushed up global debt by the end of this year to close to 280 trillion uh, about 3.65 times global GDP. It's at levels we've never seen before globally. And the the scale of debt that has been built up over this long term debt cycle, which arguably goes back 50 years, is now reached a point where they can't increase interest rates. It's not possible because the debt load is too high. So we're into this extraordinary period of zero or negative interest rates and and massive amounts of of debt, which has created a huge surplus of capital. So there's huge, massive amounts of cash knocking around, seeking things to do. So you have an excess capital. So this is mispricing by central banks of the one commodity they're responsible for, which is the pricing of money. And they've done it for 10 years. And we've reached this point now where it's a bit like a a sponge that's taken on too much water. Uh, It can continue to take on a little bit more, but it needs a squeeze. Um, and so therefore, large parts of the global economy, especially Europe, Japan, where you have aging populations, and I'm excluding Ireland from that, uh, are, are, are are facing kind of very sluggish type conditions, very low rates of economic growth, very low, you know, negative returns on cash and bonds for maybe five or ten years or longer. We just don't know. And the only real growth that that's going to come would be technology gains, pharmaceutical gains in, in developed markets. But 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 in the emerging markets, obviously, you know, the population story will continue to be a bright one in Asia and other areas. Uh, so as we're speaking then, the the global financial system is being re-engineered. Um, and that's my point in my latest um article where I'm pointing out that, you know, the the, the focus has been on 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 very good advocates like um Alexandra um, uh, AOC in America, uh, who I've been following with great interest since she first burst onto the scene, she's just extraordinary to watch her perform uh, and uh, and others, you know, advocating from the kind of left position, which is fine, but an Extinction Rebellion then at the extreme end of all of that, like but really the attention should be elsewhere, because that's where the, the when you've got powerful technocrats coming together to try and uh, to come up with another solution. These are unelected technocrats like the ECB, which is unaccountable to anybody. Um, uh, central bankers, organisations like the uh, Bank for International Settlements, which was set up at the end of the First World War, a very interesting organisation, not enough known about it. Uh, the Financial Stability Board, all of these, are, 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 are their, their power has grown over this period. So what we've got really for the last 10 years, and I know it's a convoluted answer to the question, is we've basically got a, we're a new type of, business model has been developed where it started off with sovereigns going on the dole and then no corporates are on the dole where the Fed and the ECB are basically buying the corporate debt issued by large companies and these are creating zombies. So zombie companies are companies that actually cannot service their own debt at normal rates of interest uh, and, and are really just existing in a, in this kind of um, artificial vacuum created by artificial supports when really what should have happened, what ideally happened, is that um, that the period of support is characterized by deep reform of these com- companies and countries to make them fitter and more productive than they were hitherto. And when that doesn't happen, you create these zombies. So the latest calculation indicates, for example, that one in every five of the US top 3000 companies is a zombie. Now they might unzombify at some stage in the future, but like they are zombies. Uh, so when you when you strip off the growth in technology and pharmaceuticals and so on, you really look at the scale of the money printing that's gone on for the last decade and you ask yourself, well, what kind of economic extra growth did that create? The answer is it's negative, you know. So we're at the end of a long term debt cycle. That's the issue. So the thing is coming to a close. They can keep it going for another while. So when you, request, you question really well, what are the ECB doing? Well, the ECB, unlike the United States, is not a country. It's a series of countries. Uh, the banking system has a central central bank, the ECB. Uh, each this ECB then is in, is 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 over overarches the individual country actors, the uh, very very central banks in the different uh, countries. They report into the ECB. They also have a a, a thing called the uh, single. Um, and anyway, they have they have the SRB, which is their, to resolu- so it's the Single Resolution Board, which is basically their uh, their fire brigade it, when when banks run into trouble, and they will, because the scale of um, bad debt that's now coming down the pipe has already been calculated in the ECB as 1.4 trillion, which is about three times the scale of the debt that caused the global financial crisis by, you know, from out of America um, back, back in the day. So these, these, these are big numbers, 1.45 trillion uh, in non-performing debt, hitting the banking system in Europe, that itself is not federalized, it's non-federalized. So um, if if we're going to have, uh, and there will be uh, banks getting into difficulty over this, um, and they'll be taken over by other banks, that's the softest thing to do, but you could you could, you could end up with harder solutions than that. Uh, obviously, that's that's an issue, and it's a global issue. And um, because um, when you've got large tracts of the economy where co- companies act- are actually insolvent, they, they don't have cash coming in the door. It's not that they have a liquidity problem, they have a solvency problem. Yes. yes. And um, and they're, they're, they're getting forbearance at the moment from various banking systems and all that will end next year. As the vaccines arrive, the tide will go out and we'll have the same situation we had before, where, you know, you will see who's wearing their togs and who's who's not. Absolutely,
0: um, it's it's that that's actually one of my favourite analogies. That you only know who's naked when the tide goes out, and um, and it's a it's a great way of kind of putting things. As as a as a fellow uh, Corkonian might say, mm-hmm. George Hook, you've got to back up the truck here now, a small bit, Eddie. <laughs> and what I what I might say is is that you know they really did have no other option though to print more money from from kind of April onwards, did they? Uh, you know, they simply weren't going to let um, countries fall apart and, and 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 businesses fall apart. But I also go back to something that you said in, in May and you said that the Irish government were kind of making a hames of, of the whole situation. Uh, you know, we seem to have not responded particularly well to what the ECB has put on the table. And now we're in a stage where SMEs, as opposed to lockdown number one, it looks like they can't get access to loans from banks. Yeah. The grants are drying up, and they have enormous cash flow difficulties. Yeah. And and we are going to see, I think, unless there's a drastic uh, change in strategy, a huge number of these SMEs
1: closing for good. Well, yeah, you brought it back into, and you're right, bring it right down into into local local nuts and bolts. Um. Firstly just on the on the broader picture like the you're right I mean globally that had to be the response because the choice was made way back in the global financial crisis arguably even before that back in 1998 when the long term capital management fund went bust like the response is keynesian economics it's just print and print any problems print 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 and print so like we you know and that's been the that's been the, the you know it's just one gear gear shift and that's it so that was always going to be the case. But like the problem that that created, for example, over the period was Italy. We a you know, huge economy in Europe should have radically reformed its practices as an economy and didn't because it had access to cheap cash from the ECB, you know, supporting its bonds. So it didn't reform. Poor old Greece was forced to reform because it went worse. We were forced to reform. Uh, and and so you have these companies then around the world are in the same position. Now when it when it comes to Ireland, sixty percent um, of the um, of 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 the economy here are, are are domestic SMEs, and these are the most vulnerable workers we have uh, um, because they don't they're not members of big blue chip employ employers. They don't have company pension schemes. There is, SMEs in Ireland have very little cash on their balance sheets because there's no point in. In, in leaving the cash in companies and then paying tax on it, in, uh, corporation tax on it. So it's taken out and people invest in property and they do their various things. So SMEs are not in a good place when it comes to surviving having no income coming in for three months or six months, or in this case, up to a year in some, in some businesses. So it was quite clear from the very outset uh, of the crisis uh, that the scale of the response of the Irish state. Was really focused on foreign direct investment. They were they were in reasonably good nick because they were employees by big companies, and 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 the public sector itself and SMEs really were you know they obviously there was the COVID payments for workers, but but SMEs themselves um, uh, were left swinging. Uh, and, and, and because they are they are regarded, in my opinion, uh, they are regarded, the Indigenous Irish business community is regarded as a subspecies in the Department of Finance, always has been and still is. And so far, I mean, I wrote about at the time of the Sunday Independent, I, I highlighted the fact that the Minister for Finance at the time, Pascal O'Donnell, hadn't even met the SME sector, What had already given hours of broadcast and communications and answering questions through the large accountancy firms to big business, uh, interests uh, that they represent, and and it was only after that stinging article that uh, that um, that the dialogue started with the Department of Finance, and it's quite clear SME. I mean, the the, the offer, the 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 sort of the uh, technical offer at the time. Well, sure, you can borrow money from the banks at cheap rates, sure, or we've organised, we'll guarantee up to whatever it was. But like SMEs don't want more debt. They have enough. Thank you very much. They need a bailout. They need cash to survive. And it was a government fiat that closed those companies. It was nothing. It wasn't bad management or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, any SME that survived the global financial crisis and came through all that has been is very, very well run business, given all of the pressures that SMEs uh, um, are under to operate in Ireland. So extraordinary business people. And, and I was highlighting that um, as an issue. So we're now in our second lockdown. There may be a third or fourth. We don't know. It depends on how quickly the vaccines get into and and all that kind of stuff next year. Uh, but we're definitely into. I think a third lockdown is probably. I think. I think it's a reasonable expectation. We're in the second one. And I mean, the truth is that uh, that a lot of the businesses, small businesses, that the people on COVID payments um um are, w- w- won't be there when when they go back to work for them. Just won't be there. They'll be gone. They'll be liquidated. So. so- if, if that's the case, Eddie, then surely like I I didn't even study
0: economics for the leaving search, but I can see that from the way things are looking is that the Irish Bank and so far the Department of Finance are happy to kind of sit by and see the collapse of SMEs over cash flow difficulties. And maybe that's because Pascal Donoghue doesn't understand what's been put on the table from the ECB, but you've already said that. Like if you're Uh, a a small to medium sized enterprise uh, business owner, you're trying to keep skin and hair together. The last Mm. thing you want to do is take on a loan of 50,000. And it seems that the Irish banks are for some reason preparing for bad loans, as opposed to the Irish government taking the money that's on the table Mm. and dropping it into the accounts of SMEs in the form of, we'll say a helicopter money or something like that.
1: Yeah, they're like grants. You're correct. Yeah, that's 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 a, that's a reasonable summary. And the reason is is like they've gone back to the old process again. of sure you can go to the bank, and we'll give the bank guarantees, and and then they'll all be very fine. But it won't be, and it won't be fine because throughout Europe, including in Ireland, banks know that there is a fatberg coming at them through the sewers of non-performing loans, and whatever, and that fatberg is going to hit. Their, uh, their capital buffers, the basic foundation of their, of their banking license. So as a consequence of that, every bank in Europe is tightening credit. So th- that's the issue if there's, a, there's a, credit, a credit tightening going on because they know that their capital base is going to be subject to major shocks. So therefore they're pulling in the horns um, they won't be pulling in the horns for people that are applying that have good jobs, public sector jobs or good jobs in FDI companies looking for mortgages. Uh, and all the rest of it. But anybody on the fringe, they're looking at them now and they're saying, sorry, uh, we can't, um, uh, you know, that that loan offer that uh, that we were talking about, I'm afraid we we can't do it now. And and that's what's going to continue on. So it's going to come, it's going to create a political crisis because um, next year when the forbearance measures come off, uh, the real um, business starts when banks in Ireland will be wading through their customer base. Deciding what is a liquid and what is insolvent. Um. So, I, this I'm not looking forward to this next question, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm
0: wondering. So, so what is your your prediction for the Irish economy and the jobs market over the next 12 to 18 months?
1: Well, I would say I would say that uh, despite all of the aforementioned challenges that the SME sector faces, it will bounce back uh, very very fast. Uh, new businesses will start. Self-employed people will get back going again because there is an indig- there is a genuine entrepreneurial culture out there. Huge amounts of talent. The problem is that the envelope that they're operating within is anti-deluvian and anti anti entrepreneur. I hate the word because it's misused sometimes by the left left leaning media. But like they're there. There's plenty of natural talent there, and it so will come through. We're in an extraordinary situation in Ireland. And. Um, Britain is about to make a pig's breakfast of leaving the EU. That leaves us in pole position, uh, closest closest land bridge to the uh, EU for, for, for American capital, English speaking, young population, educated, all of those things are true. So Ireland really behaves more like a tiger, an Asian tiger economy than it does as a kind of an aging European kind of slightly sclerotic. Uh, you, uh, your European economy. We'll benefit from that. We have a young population, it's growing. We've obviously created bottlenecks and housing and health and education. All of that has to be dealt with with a reform of the public sector. God help us at some stage in the future um, if we ever get around to it. Um, but certainly I, I see the Irish economy coming back quite quickly uh, or GNP, not just at a GDP level, which is distorted by foreign direct investment, but at a GNP level as well. I think the indigenous economy will come back quite fast despite the challenges. Um, but the problem is, um, I mean, it's, it's just going to be absolutely gorgeous for the uh, for the insolvent small business left behind dealing with the Irish banks and under the Irish system. I,
0: I want to maybe move away from the shores a small bit, Eddie, and mm. talk. I know we've, you've spoken about your piece that you've written on, on your website there in the last couple of days. And if we look at macroeconomics at a, a wider level, kind of a European, an American sure. level, and you're talking about how the world essentially is just in an, an enormous debt cycle. And I, I I think that, you know, the Japanese in particular have been going through through this f- for, for some time now.
1: Yeah, and yeah, I, for over 30 years, yeah, some time.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I know there's an interesting appointment to the the Treasury that Joe Biden has picked. And that's Janet Yellen, who by all accounts is a fairly steady eddy figure. She's, you know, that the, there's no kind of left tinge in her whatsoever, as you, you were you were referring to AOC a minute ago. They yeah. would have may- maybe have gone for someone like an Elizabeth Warren or something like that. So I can't see that much radical change. But, you know, in your latest piece, you're, you're, you're suggesting that there is going to be a bit of a shift over the course of the next decade.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Americans, I mean, Yellen is a very good appointment. As you say, she's a very st- steady hand on the till. Biden is a very steady hand on the till as well, uh, which is good. And uh, the Americans will be there trying to defend the dollar as the world reserve currency. But they have their own issues because their own debt level is obviously ballooning up. And um, now the the, the American um, preeminence will continue on for most of this century. In my opinion, they have so much of, you know, they've, they've, they're stronger now than they were before the global financial crisis because of their strengths and their institutions are strong, their military is strong, their power, their reach is strong. And of course, they have the world reserve currency, the dollar. Um, but but across the board, where you're where you where you're now at the end of a long-term debt cycle, uh, you begin to see the the changes coming. The uh, the new head of the IMF who took over from um, Lagarde is a Bulgarian uh, economist, PhD economist, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, and she's talking about she's openly now promoting the idea of a new Bretton Woods moment. Now, if you know what that means, I mean that's loaded. Like Bretton Woods was the, um, um multi-national uh, kind of Multi-country agreement that that uh, that 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 sort of sorted out the, um, the 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 destruction of the Second World War and and stopped a Third World War from developing from currency wars that might emerge. So the currency system was fixed, linked to the dollar, pegged to the dollar. Uh, most of the gold at the time was held in the United States, so the U- U.S. became the world reserve currency. It Took over from Sterling, which was destroyed after the First and Second World War. Uh, so so therefore, a new Bretton Woods moment means that the IMF is openly talking about repegging um, the global financial system in some way. Meanwhile, her, her, um, uh, the former head of the IMF, now the chief at the ECB, Christine Lagarde, is openly talking about the ECB bringing in its digital currency. And um, I mean, that would mean that anybody has got Bitcoin in these private cryptocurrencies will be just rendered illegal or priced out of it. But I mean, global central banks bringing in their own currency does mean that they can distribute cash uh, through the digital format directly into consumer bank accounts. Remember, they've already bailed out nation states. They're bailing out large companies, so bailing out individual consumers who've lost their jobs, for example, because of the advent of uh, robotics and artificial intelligence uh, could be done centrally using digital currencies. And I think that's the play. I think that's what's going on. But no, I mean, all this might sound fanciful until you actually read what these people are writing and saying. So the real, the one to focus a lot of attention on is um, Klaus Schwab. And uh, you might say, well, who is he? Well, if you re- if you remember Blofeld, who was the head of Spectre in the Bond movies, you'll get some sense of who Klaus Schwab is. He's the founder of and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. Uh, which is based in Switzerland, and and it's it's very heavily and it's very heavily linked to um, Bilderberg. Um, D- it takes part in Davos. Uh, it was involved with the uh, John Hopkins Center for Health uh, Health Security, uh, and with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in running a um, um, assimilated global pandemic meeting in October the eighteenth, two thousand nineteen. So it's 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 a big player, and he's openly talking about um about the about about the next move, you know that um that that the smartphone is has become an extension of ourselves where we wearable technology uh, and and he begins to see uh, a future of um technology and humankind uh, linked together. Um, and and obviously uh, from what I can see the um the play is that uh, that a new currency, regime is coming in, it will be digital, it'll be central bank control, with a lot of central bank power. And then the, the debate will start. Are we now into modern monetary theory? Um the British decision, I mean, if you want if you're, at, you know, if we want to have a serious question about Brexit, I mean, the, 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 the British decision to leave the EU um walk away from its main trading block without trading, you know, and, and then relying on Trump of all people to kind of bail them out with a US agreement. It's nuts, but they're going to get
0: cheap beef from Argentina, aren't they? And solve all their problems. I think. I think we could actually turn this into some sort of Joe Rogan four and a half hour style <laughs> podcast. You know, if if we could. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, it. And and listen, we might um, we might get you back in a, in a, in a few weeks' time again when the the European Commission uh, meets and sits down. To discuss the way forward and possibly, you know, MMT modern monetary theory cropping up in in the next couple of weeks. But uh, uh, until then, thanks so much for joining me today, and welcome. we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. So well, I'm absolutely thrilled. Well, that was Eddie Hobbs. Oh, by that's playing again. Eddie Hobbs. Eddie is a regular. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Uh, it, that was a fantastic little chat I had with Eddie Hobbs on Friday evening. There was plenty of discussion in there. And hopefully we're going to have Eddie on again soon. Uh, The full interview, as I said a while ago, is up on Spotify at the moment. um, And there's a little bit extra in there uh, on Eddie's beliefs uh, on just the Irish uh, public sector and uh, a, a little bit on poor journalism at the moment these days so an interesting uh, discussion and you can find that on our Spotify. Adam I know you listened to uh, the full thing not just the clip version that we played there what What did you make of some of the things that Eddie had to say?
3: I thought that it was very interesting and I would definitely advise people to listen to the full thing. Um, I agreed with him in 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 much parts I think that it, he was presenting the sober reality in the sense that you know a lot of businesses are not in good situations right now they're um they've been offered grants or sorry uh, they've been offered loans which they don't need they haven't been given the supports which they actually require but at the same time you know if i had to give one takeaway of it i I distinctly remember eddie going on for a period about um how hope remains and that since ireland particularly um post-brexit is a well-educated Um, relatively young, English-speaking member of the European Union, we still have plenty of opportunities presenting us. I saw this week, for example, that the European Weather Centre is likely to be moving from from Reading uh, to Dublin um, at some time over the next few months. So look, we've talked so much over the last few weeks and people generally about economic desolation, but I think that Eddie um, had his finger on the pulse by talking about the strength of character and strength of... um, Uh, the Irish SME um, sector.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting in terms of like the the entrepreneur side of it and the education side. I was listening to um, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer who's a big pro-Brexiteer. I was listening to her on the Anthony Scaramucci podcast the other day and uh, she was, I don't know if this was true because she's a mad Brexiteer but uh, she was saying that five of the top universities in the eu are actually all based in britain so they're going to be coming out of it so i'd imagine that ucc and a couple of other universities are going to be bumped up the list and uh, and hopefully we see the funding come in here and as you say that we we kind of uh, have a have a good spell of growth over the next couple of years in the european uh, market i want to turn our attention to the latest data collection from from polls on uh, guessing the outcome of the of the next general election there's some unbelievably interesting things in there not just to do with the party polling itself but we'll start there and it seems that Sinn Féin if you go by the the data that's recorded here that they've recorded their highest ever percentage of of first preference votes I think it was about 30 percent now between the three of us in this studio, I think if you kind of chopped up all of our bodies and you took like an arm from me and a leg from Anya and the liver from, well, we won't talk about your liver, Adam, <laughs> but uh, so, so, something something else from you uh, that we probably wouldn't make a shinner as, as, as much as we tried out of all the bits of our bodies put together. But as a result, I suppose that clearly means that we are part of the elite. We have no understanding of a large percentage of voters that they want change and that they want Sinn Féin an alternative government. And um, is that true, Anya?
2: I think you're right. I, To be honest, this poll shocked me a bit, not over Sinn Féin's uh, high percentage of first preference votes. It was also about the bad performance of a lot of the smaller parties. And I think we've seen a lot of the smaller left parties like Labour and the Social Democrats performing extremely well in the Doyle, bringing up great legislation, bringing up great talking points. And I think if people want to vote for the left, I think it's kind of hard to understand. Well, really, I think it's populism. Owen O'Brien has said it's populism, is the reason they're turning towards Sinn Féin. Because I do think there's a lot of viable opportunities. If people want change, I think there were a lot of other options. But as Owen O'Brien said last week, they are proudly a populist party and that's that really, yeah.
0: Interesting. So she's actually admitted to being a member of the elite, which is amazing. Probably in a, in a, inadvertently, I'd imagine. But, uh, I mean, Christ, Adam, you must be part of the elite, aren't you?
3: No, I'm I'm shaking my head furiously here. Um, look, my take on the polling was I felt that Fianna Fáil is consistently underrepresented they've got a well-oiled party political machine from the last hundred years i think in an election tomorrow they're not going to get less than maybe 15 upwards towards 20 percent um i think fiona gale would have been expecting a slight dip in the polls because of radcair's controversies of recent but it won't worry them too much i think they'll be hoping to make that ground up and look the, the the rise of Sinn Féin is something that we've been documenting for a number of months, particularly amongst young people um, it's something that worries me, it's something particularly that worries me because I think Oni makes a good point about how if you are of um, a progressive ideological persuasion and you care about uh, issues such as climate change per, perhaps or economic inequality um, investment in public services you have a number of parties who are very principled on those issues and have been for quite some time um, those of a social democratic or green persuasion, but Sinn Féin don't offer you that because they're against them, um, they're against the carbon tax which has been proven to uh, counteract climate change, they're against the local property tax, they were against water taxes they don't seem very interested in public investment or else if they are interested they want to get it I'm not sure where they're going to get it
0: from mm, Well I mean I'm looking at it here now and I can see Fianna fall on 12% I mean that's fairly abysmal sorry, sorry Anya, and uh, you know F- Fine Gael up there on 33% Sinn Féin on 30% but some, something uh, that I also found uh, pretty interesting uh, was the idea of the vaccine and I know we keep going on about the vaccine but Sinn Féin down there on, on the, uh, a percentage uptake 55% when you consider that the Green Party is 91 Labour Party 89 Fianna Fáil 83 Fianna Gael 81 55% for Sinn Féin I mean what does that tell us?
3: didn't surprise me and is in accordance with recent polling which showed a 2 and Sinn Féin as being the primary parties that would be likely to support Donald Trump um, in the US election. I saw the debate emerging surrounding that and half of um, commentators felt as though we should be asking ourselves some big philosophical questions about why we're finding it so difficult for Sinn Féin supporters to kind of buy into a lot of these institutions, establishments. Um, The other side said that that's complete um, and utter, utterly wrong um, and I would take this side uh, which is that it's obvious that Sinn Féin has Sinn Féin politicians have purpose, purposefully um, created such a situation where their their supporters um, doubt politicians doubt the media doubt those that in a couple of months are going to be um, pushing for us to take a vaccine
0: and it'll be interesting to see what stance Sinn Féin take on this you know because if, if we are to say that they have kind of 20, upwards of 28% uh, share of the vote at the moment they're going to have to tell a lot of their own supporters to, to take a You know, if it is a manager you're going to have to take a, a serious stance on that. I um, think they
3: will. I think they will. Well,
2: and I I it'd be interesting to see where it goes. Mm. I think if you look at uh, David Colnan has uh, said this already, that he fully supports it. Now, this is fairly recent because if you look at it, I remember just a couple of weeks ago on an RT panel, Darrell O'Brien was representing of All and said straight away when it, when they were asked, would you take the vaccine? He said, absolutely, without a doubt. I trust it. It is so safe, huge human trials, etc. And I can't remember who the Sinn-, Sinn Féin TD was, but at the time she said, look, I would, but at the same time we need to respect that some people may not trust it and things like that. And that's really dangerous because people need very clear I suppose they need a very clear line on this, that this is safe because it is. I suppose the huge trials are the only proof of it, really. But really, you're right. I think they do need to take a hard stance. But I suppose some at the top have taken hard stances on things like Mary Lou MacDonald about their history and that not being an issue anymore, while others such as uh uh, TD from Lee Shoffley this week have shown may not be in agreement there. So hopefully they will, but I wouldn't see all of their TDs agreeing
0: with this completely. Mm, and I'm uh, just looking at the, the demographics then in terms of age and they have a huge amount of uh, support amongst 18 to 34 year olds at 41% Fianna Gael down on 19% in Fianna Fáil and 10%. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're probably a long way away from a general uh, a election yet, and it seems that you know there's always this idea of the cannibalizing of the left as well, and how it, 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 you know if you don't achieve some sort of shift towards Sinn Fein, that there will never ever be uh, you know a, a government being led by someone fairly um, fairly left. Uh, and then again, thirty-five to fifty-four year olds Sinn Fein on thirty-eight percent again, which I thought was pretty interesting. But then I came to age 65 plus and this was what i found most interesting a huge surge for fina gael up to 47 percent and a collapse of the vote for fina fall down to 15 percent so there was literally a correlation between the two swings uh, fina gael up 16.8 percent and fina fall down 14.7 percent and then i was kind of thinking why that would be the case because i mean obviously both parties are in government and I wonder if it's I don't know if it's the stance on lockdowns, because sixty-five year olds maybe want to be able to see their grandchildren or maybe want to actually be able to get back to living their lives. And we know that Fina Fáil are a little bit more conservative in that as 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 opposed to to Fina Gale. I mean, what what do you think about that? Am I am I losing my mind here or what?
2: Well, I suppose my opinion, I think this surge that Fina Gale have had since very early on in the lockdown, seven, eight months ago, that has come from i suppose them being in power at a time when the nation was completely united on this where it was a complete unanimous op- opinion that lockdown had to had to come complete lockdown anyone who needed it had the full pandemic unemployment payment and things like that but that was never, I suppose, the exit to lockdown was always going to be harder than getting into it. So you could say that from a popularity perspective, Fianna Fáil came into government at the worst possible time. I suppose, you know, some people argue that Neffet were too strong, but then if the government go against Neffet, then they're criticised for that too. And there's a lot more opinions on how to get out of it. So really, I think Fine Gael are experiencing that kind of surge that they had from being in charge at a time where the country was really united. And I don't think it's anyone's fault that they're not now. I think that was always inevitable coming out of lockdown. But at the same time, I think it was very good timing on their part more than anything else.
3: Would you agree, Adam? I would agree. As regards the younger voters and Sinn Féin being so dominant amongst them, and both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael dropping amongst that constituency and performing poorly and generally amongst them, I think that in that instance it is very understandable, and the onus is on the kind of two established parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, Um, a lack of opportunities, a lack of, you know. uh, opportunities for jobs um, you know, educational opportunities the cost of accommodation, difficulties in the housing sector. It's very understandable that young people are frustrated and so the onus is on Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to try and create a situation that makes young people recognise that they have a stake in society, that they have a future in Ireland and that um, work is being done to tangibly improve their lives in terms of housing, health education and matters that actually matter them, to them.
0: And we didn't mention the Judicial system in that, and I don't. I don't want to get too bogged down with uh, with everything that's going on with um, Judge Seamus Wolf. But one of the other interesting questions that were posed to the uh, electorate in in this poll was the percentage who would agree that uh, Justice Wolf should actually resign. And eighteen to thirty four year old actually only polled sixty percent, as opposed to fifty five plus, which was seventy one percent. Um, which I think is, is, is really, really interesting as well. Now, maybe that's because people in the 18 to 34-year-old bracket just aren't aware of the situation or they're not particularly invested in it or maybe people who are slightly older are more invested in the judicial system and fairness and equity and all that. Um, so we'll we'll leave that one there for now. But I do want to move on to political leadership. So... We know that Michal Martin isn't going to hang around all the time. We know that Leo is probably going to head off into the sunset in three or four years as well. So what I might do is, to save on you some embarrassment here, I'm going to actually ask Adam... Who do you think that actually is in the running to become the next Fianna Fáil leader?
3: Next Fianna Fáil leader. Well, I'm following politics enough to remember that there's people been discussing this probably since six months after Micheál Martin became um, leader. And I think in in fairness to him, it's worth recognising that I think in general he's done a really good job to revitalise a party that was on the brink. Um, I think that ultimately, (laughs) as so many things do, it comes down to Cork versus Dublin and that you're likely to have either Michael McGrath or Jim O'Callaghan, um, as the next Fianna Fáil leader before the Golfgate saga you might have put Derek Leary in there um, as the party you know what is it the chief I can't even remember he was one of the, He was high up in the parliamentary party anyway so um, but yeah and then there's other names out there James Lawless and Thomas Byrne and these but I think that the big two Michael
0: McGrath and Jim O'Callaghan Do you want to come in at all on you or are you hedging your bets or?
2: Uh, I suppose I agree with you I th- think I suppose Fianna Fáil suffered a lot while I think Micheál Martin and Derek Leary are two brilliant politicians. Uh, I do think Fianna Fáil suffered in Dublin a lot from not having a leader or a deputy leader in Dublin. I think that will have to be considered into the future but ultimately uh, I do think they were two very good figures. I think Hall is still doing a great job. I think Derek Leary did a very good job while he was there but definitely It was the first time in a long time that there was no leader or deputy leader from Dublin and that clearly hurt them, as you can see in the polls, so that will have to be considered going forward. And of
3: course, as a character line man, Kieran, you you're going to be saying uh, with your insider knowledge that not only is it two regionally different um, candidates, if we're to say that it's Jim O'Callaghan and Michael McGrath, but also two people of very distinct Politics. I mean, Jim O'Callaghan would self-describe as someone of the centre-left who would like to see Fianna Fáil go in that direction. Um, Michael McGrath, a more conservative man, both socially and economically.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it will be interesting. I mean, the, the fact is is that it's going to have to be someone pretty outside of Dublin because they're just polling so badly in there. Um, like, I, I can't see them... I can't see them going with anyone other than kind of a steady rural based popular candidate um, but look we, we'll wait and see I think maybe if we were having this discussion in three or four years time we might be looking at a man down in West Cork uh, in, 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 in Chris O'Sullivan um, mm. you know I, I think he's kind of this younger breed and generation of, of Fianna Fáil politicians um, who, who is probably more popular with the, the, the youth of the party and um, and if we have a look, so instead at, at Fina Gael and Leo, I mean, he's probably in a way the complete opposite to, to hall, in that he has a huge amount of support in the kind of leafy suburbs. And, um, you know, people like the fact that we have a kind of half Indian gay Taoiseach. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of a, 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 sh- a sign of, of modern Ireland in a way. And, and he gets a lot of support. I would imagine, from from people who are progressively minded. So I would imagine Fine Gael would have to try and find another candidate who fits that profile.
3: Um, I'm I'm not sure about that assessment. I think that it seems fairly obvious that... I don't think they'll be thinking about... um, outsiders are taking risks uh, by choosing Simon Coveney as their next leader, um, particularly because of his role in the Brexit negotiations, but also in the sense that Simon Coveney did very well in the leadership contest. He was more popular than Leo um, amongst the voting electorate in Fine Gael. And uh, I think that he appeals to a broad spectre of society, rural um, and urban, young and old, um, male and female. I think Simon, Ken- uh, Simon Coveney is well, well liked, but also well respected.
2: Yeah, I would agree. Uh, But I think there's a lot of figures coming up in Fine Gael now that maybe wouldn't have been considered before. Simon Harris has really boosted his profile since the start of the COVID crisis. I suppose the ministry he has at the moment is kind of one that is giving out a lot of good news, more so than bad news. And in fairness, he did do a great job at the start, I think. Uh, of the pandemic. But I suppose you have other figures. I know there's somewhat of controversy at the moment, but I think Kellen McEntee overall is really for somebody who hasn't been in government that long. Uh, I suppose only became a minister in 2018 or 2017, I believe. Uh, I think she's been doing a great job. I think the way she has responded, I suppose, to the image-based sexual abuse things that were going on in the past couple of weeks, the way she responded on that so quickly, I think that'll really work really well with a lot of the younger voter base. And yeah, so I would say Simon Harris, Helen McEntee and maybe a few others you couldn't rule out either.
0: Mm, and I think Simon Coveney has done a, a marvellous job with, uh, with Brexit negotiations and he's constantly the highest polling rating minister of the last four or five years. I think people have come, like whatever your political allegiance is, um, they, they've realised that there is one person for that job in terms of Brexit and it is, it is Simon Coveney. And it'll be interesting to see what happens you know post brexit um you know is there going to be a constant ministerial role there for negotiating and 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 trade with britain alone mm. um and who is going to fill that job is that a big enough role for for simon to to take on i mean we have to remember that he's an incredible incredibly uh, intelligent man there's nothing to say that he leaves um you know the constraints of of public office and goes off into the private sector and um and, and earns a killing you know mm. i i can see him he- head, heading up a, a a lot of um a lot of big businesses um like his brother l- exactly l- like like his brother um any any final words guys
3: um god we're we're looking well for cork michael McGrath, Fiona fall leader and Simon in as um Fianna Gay leader and hopefully one of them is Taoiseach <laughs> uh,
2: you're definitely right there Cork South Central has been punching it. above its weight politically for quite a while yeah yeah, so. and, and,
0: I, sh- and I, 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 sh- I should say uh, Dona is doing doing a really good job for Sinn Féin as well That's in, true. in my absolutely. opinion
3: and a UCC yeah. uh, graduate uh,
0: absolutely yeah. uh, every, every time he uh, every time he rises to the Dáil to speak uh, I think he actually impresses more and more so it, it'll be interesting to see um the the shape of his career in the next couple of years as well Mm -hmm. so Anya Adam thanks a million for joining me again this week and uh, we'll see probably one if not two of you again next week Thanks, thanks thank you very much